All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all this morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our study in Acts, uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 through 5, uh, verse 11. And we're going to be looking this morning at the marks of a healthy church. Uh, And so uh, before we get into the uh, text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you uh, for this uh, blessed Sunday. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the the ability to be here to worship freely in this country. Uh, Lord, we we thank you for the ability to gather here. And Lord, we pray that uh, your words would ring out true today, Lord, that that they would not return void, but they would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent them. Now, Lord, we pray that you open our hearts uh, to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Well, you know, before the advent of uh, video games, uh, one of the things that that young boys liked to do was to build model cars. Uh, You know, I don't know if kids build model cars anymore. Uh, I haven't seen them on the shelves in, in quite a while. Uh, but uh, I used to build them when I was young, uh, a couple of times anyway. Uh, so uh, the problem with me and model cars is that I really don't have the patience uh, to read all the directions that are required to be read and to sit still uh, for a very long period of time. And so uh, my model car usually ended up with uh, you know 50 pieces missing, and I was covered in glue from head to toe, and, and my car looked like it had been in several wrecks before it had even been completed yet. So... Uh, I abandoned the building of model cars and went outside and played football. Uh, But the kids now, they play video games. I don't know if they do model cars anymore. But if you want to build a good model car, uh, you have to be able to follow instructions. And, you know, to to build a model church, you have to be able to follow instructions too. And and that's what we see uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, The the church in Acts is a model that we want to follow because uh, these guys were constantly... Uh, praying to God, and they were preaching the word, and, and they were making converts, and they were making disciples, winning souls for Christ. And, and these are some of the marks of a healthy church. And we're going to look at three marks of the healthy church today uh, in this passage that we're going to be going through. Uh, and, and we'll look at them, and then we're going to look at the examples that follow uh, these, uh, these marks of a healthy church. We'll see a good example uh, by Barnabas, and then we'll see a not-so-good example by Barnabas and uh, Sapphira. So uh, we will move forward uh, today reading from the, uh, from the uh, chapter 4. Uh, my clicker is not working this morning, Dina, so I'm going to need you to advance slides for me. Uh, thank you. Uh, so chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Uh, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was not, or I'm sorry, not that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Well, brothers and sisters, this is what the first century church is supposed to look like. Uh, the first mark of a healthy church is that they were of one heart and of one soul. We see that they were united. The first mark is unity. And we've seen several times in our study already uh, this word homothumadon uh, as we've studied this, uh, this, this book of Acts. And, and homothumadon means to be of one mind, to be of one accord. But now, here we have something even deeper, to be of one heart and to be of one soul. 
Uh, the heart is the center of human personality. It's the fountain of human will and emotions. And, and so it's really the center of the being. And the soul is the thing that actually gives life to the body. Uh, and so these folks were of one heart and one soul, which means they're essentially one and the same person in their passion, in their convictions, in their love for one another, and in their love for God. Uh, and, and so none of them claimed anything as their own as a result of this uh, oneness of heart and soul that they had. Uh, and, and of course, they still owned the things that they had, uh, but everything was for common use. Uh, so, you know, if my lawnmower wasn't working, I can go right next door and I can grab their, that person's lawnmower and I can use it to mow my lawn and I don't even have to ask. And, and if you need a cup of sugar or an egg, you can come to my house and you can get that uh, without even having to ask because everything uh, is common property. And, and that's a mark of the first century church. They shared all the stuff that they had. And so as we think about this mark of the first century church, I want to think about things that might prevent us from, from having these kinds of marks. So what, what prevents the unity of, of our church or the church at large? I'm not talking about our particular body, but the church in general. Uh, what prevents us from having that kind of unity? You know, I think often it's not so much theology that divides us, but it's practice and it's pride and it's preference. I think those are the things that divide us more than anything, that's, that's more the reason why there are so many denominations of Protestantism. It's pride and preference uh, more than theology. Um, not here, but in other churches, people get their feelings easily hurt when they make a suggestion that doesn't get adopted necessarily. Or, um, you know, people may see the church moving in a direction that they don't like. Uh, sometimes people don't like what the past, pastor happens to be preaching about. Uh, or may, they may not like the music selections. You know, these are things that divide a church and cause the church not to be unified. And, and I think when that happens, uh, the reason that our pride uh, and our preference affects our unity is because when that happens, we've forgotten that this is God's church. It's not our church. Uh, and, and God is leading this church. He's the head of the church, and we are not the head of the church. And so when we put our pride and preference above God and what God wants for our church, and then we've got the, the tail wagging the dog, and, and we shouldn't have that. We should not forget that the church is his church and not our church. And the reason why uh, I want to have these prayer meetings at Grace Redeemer Church and why we're having them is because uh, I want us to gather together as a unified body and ask God what his will is for this church and, and what direction he wants us to move in so that we are not a bunch of people running off in different directions. We're under the authority of God, and God tells us what to do. And I don't think anything creates stronger unity uh, in a body than people gathering together, praying to the Lord, uh, and hearing from the Lord as a corporate body, and having the Lord tell us all uh, what he would like us to be doing. And so uh, unity is one of the first marks of the uh, first century church. Uh, the next mark of the first century church is that it's gospel-centered, and evangelism focused. A healthy church preaches the gospel and gives testimony to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And, and these apostles were doing exactly that as they followed uh, the Great Commission and they followed Acts 1. Uh, the Great Commission uh, says, go therefore and, and, and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded you, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Uh, in Acts 1.8, uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And, 
And that's what these guys were doing. They were going out, witnessing, preaching the gospel, making converts, making disciples. Uh, and, and so they were being blessed by that. And as a result of their preaching, uh, we see in these verses that abundant grace was on these people. And they were going to need that abundant grace because they're going to face lots of opposition. And they're going to face difficulties in their mission. Uh, and yet they're going to need the grace that was on them uh, to continue to boldly preach the gospel and continue to boldly draw people uh, to Christ. And so we preach the gospel inside these walls, right? I think we do a good job of that both in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings, but also in the ministries that we do uh, during the week. There's gospel being preached and gospel being studied all during the week. Uh, what we need to do is take the gospel and preach it outside these walls. There are so many unbelievers, uh, people who just have not heard the word and been privileged to understand the word like we have. And we need to go outside the walls and we need to teach people uh, the gospel. And we're God's hands and feet. Uh, we're the ones who have to do it. It's not going to happen if we don't do it. God appoints us to do it. So we need to do it. Uh, and what we'll see is just like the first century church, when the gospel is preached, God is going to add to our number. So what prevents us from preaching the gospel? Why don't we go out uh, and, and, and preach the gospel uh, as strongly and as boldly as we should? I think the answer is one word. I think it's fear. Uh, we are afraid of rejection. We're afraid of embarrassment. We're afraid that we might lose our job. Uh, we're afraid that people are going to think we're weird. We're going we're to be afraid that... that uh, we might run across somebody who knows more than we do or, or will ask questions that we won't have the answer to. Uh, these are all reasons to be afraid. And, and I tell you, uh, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself here. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you understand that, that I have these same fears uh, that you have. Uh, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we'll be able to be bold and be strong and be courageous uh, to go out and preach the gospel beyond these walls to people who have not heard and if we don't know the answer, so what? We say, I'll get back to you on that. I know there's a good answer. I just don't happen to have it right now, but I'll get back to you on that. Uh, the Holy Spirit will give us the power uh, to preach uh, and, to, and to come up with those kinds of answers. And if they reject what we have to say, we have to understand that they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. And so we don't need to fear them. Uh, let them reject God. They're not rejecting us. God wants us to look at people like he looks at people. Uh, people that he loves, people who are lost, that he wants to draw to himself. So we need to be willing to risk rejection and fear and embarrassment for the sake of the much larger goal of winning a soul to Christ. So let's keep that in mind. And, uh, you know, I'm just praying that we'll have the courage to do that. Uh, I'm not even suggesting, you know, door-to-door -door evangelism. I'm suggesting that, uh, you know, if you're in a supermarket and you can't reach something on the shelf, maybe you'll strike up a conversation with somebody and somebody might come. Uh, and so if we do things like that, uh, we will be uh, preaching the word and, and just drawing people to Christ. So who knows how God will use us if we have the courage uh, just to go out and preach the word and approach people. So that's the second mark. It's gospel-centered and evangelism-focused. And the third mark of a, uh, of, a, of a healthy church is generosity. We see that in these verses 34 and 35. There was not a single person who had need. Can you imagine that? Not a single person who had any need because the people with surplus would go and sell the stuff that they had that they didn't need and they would lay the money at the apostles' feet and the apostles would distribute it to people uh, as whoever, anybody, had need. 
And so, you know, they would sell their houses, they would sell their land, and it would be gone. And this is a much bigger step than what we're talking about just a couple of verses before. It's one thing to share your stuff, but ultimately that stuff belongs to you. Uh, you haven't given up control of it. But when you sell your house and you sell your land, uh, the asset is gone, the proceeds are gone, uh, you don't get a tax deduction on your tax returns for giving in those days like we get today when we give. Uh, all you have is the spiritual blessing of knowing that you have helped someone in need and knowing that God has approved of what you've done. And I pray that that is enough for us. It should be, right? That should be enough for us to know that God approves of what we've done. You know, there was a time uh, in my life, uh, Molly and my uh, life, uh, where, where we were doing pretty well financially back in the days of uh, when the law firm was fr uh, thriving. And we used to like to give money away uh, when, when we could. And, and you know, that, that might sound like a brag, but I actually say it to our shame because uh, we were trusting in ourselves and our bank account. And when we had a surplus, we were happy to give it away. But when things got tight, uh, we weren't so willing to give it away as we used to be. And, and why is that? Fear. Uh, we weren't trusting God, right? We weren't trusting God as well as we should. Uh, and so, you know, we make budgets. And we should make budgets. We need budgets to balance what we have coming in versus what we have going out. God wants us to have budgets. He doesn't want us to be irresponsible financially. Uh, but what I'm saying is that we need to stretch our faith a little bit more by giving beyond our budgets a little bit more and then watch how God works. Watch how God supplies our lack when we've given away uh, more than we intended to. Watch how God uh, fills that up again. And, you know, giving is not a problem in this church. Uh, I think we all know that. We would never have been able to acquire this building, uh, do all the rehab that was needed to be done, and, and we give a, a lot of money to, to missionaries uh, around the world. So uh, giving is not a problem. And, and uh, so I've seen that since the time I've been here. But what I want to suggest is that maybe we can be more aware of believers in our body and outside our body who have individual needs uh, that maybe we have the ability to help supply uh, and try to meet that need where, where we can. And that would require the kind of sacrificial giving that was going on in the first century church in Acts. Uh, and so as much as possible, we want no believer to have need if there's anything that we can do about it. And so uh, I'm not asking that you come and bring these gifts and lay them at the feet of the elders. You don't have to do that. If, if you know of someone in need, uh, please feel free. Give, give out of your... Uh, out of your uh, own resources as best you can. Uh, and that's beyond your regular giving, beyond your regular tithes and offerings. This kind of stretching uh, will not only bless the person, uh, but it'll bless you as, as you watch God work not only in their person's life, uh, in that person's life, but in your life as you watch God fill up what is lacking in you. Uh, it takes trust to be able to give that way. And it also takes trust to be able to receive that way. After uh, our time of plenty, uh, we fell into a time of need, and we found ourselves on the giving end, or on the receiving end, I'm sorry, of, of gifts from people when, when we had need. And that is a very humbling experience. If you've ever been on that end, uh, I know that you know that. Uh, for a proud person like me, uh, that was difficult, and maybe some of you can relate. It's much easier to be a giver than it is to be a receiver. Uh, and I used to love anonymous gifts, so I didn't have to know who it was who was giving and, and have to have my shame be open uh, to that person. So an anonymous gift was always a blessing. 
Uh, so very difficult times that we went through and very humbling times. But, you know, when you're willing to receive a gift, uh, that's just as much of a blessing as it is to be willing to give a gift. Because when you receive a gift and you're willing to receive a gift, you allow the giver to be blessed. And so uh, I just pray that we wouldn't be so proud to receive if we need. And I pray that we would be uh, faithful enough to give if we have the opportunity uh, to give. So we see uh, these first century, uh, these marks of a healthy church in the first century. It's unified, it's gospel-centered, evangelism-focused, and it's very generous. And so now we have a couple of examples, one for good and one for bad. So let's take a look at this good example of Barnabas, verses 36 and 37. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. One back. Thank you. Uh, So Joseph was a very common name uh, in Israel, as you might imagine, Uh, you know, taken from the patriarch Joseph. And so there's lots of Josephs, but this particular Joseph was given a nickname, and, and it was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And as we travel throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see Barnabas pop up several times and We'll see where he has been an encouragement to people uh, as he uh, proceeds through the book, particularly to uh, Paul and to John Mark later in the book. Uh, He's a wonderful man of encouragement. And uh, we're told here by Luke that he's a Levite. Now, Levites were not supposed to own land, according to Numbers 18.20 and Deuteronomy 10.9. But times had changed as the centuries rolled by. Even Jeremiah the priest owned land 600 years uh, beforehand. And so uh, a priest or a Levite owning land in the first century was not so uncommon. And so he owns this piece of land. Uh, And we're told also that he is uh, somebody uh, who's a Cyprian. And a Cyprian is from the island of Cyprus. And so I'll show you this island of Cyprus on the map here. It's right there on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, It's directly across due east is Syria and uh, due southeast is Israel. And so that's where that land is. Uh, and he's from there. Now, uh, Israelites had uh, inhabited uh, Cyprus beginning in about 330 BC, and they inhabited Cyprus all the way till about 117 AD when they were uh, kicked out for some kind of rebellion uh, against the empire. So somewhere in that window, uh, uh, Barnabas's family had settled there in Cyprus, and Barnabas may either have been born there or maybe his family resettled there uh, during some point. Uh, in time. But what's interesting about all of this is that uh, Barnabas was probably one of the first converts who was not from Jerusalem. Uh, He's from an area outside of Jerusalem, and he's been converted, and he is the one who Luke holds up here to be this model uh, citizen that we all ought to follow. So he owns this piece of land, and he sells it, and he lays the entire proceeds at the apostles' feet. And so what we see is Barnabas obeying what the marks of a healthy church are, right? A healthy church is only consisting of members who are healthy. And so he is part of this healthy church, uh, doing the things that make a church healthy. And he's showing us this model that we should follow. And so Luke is showing us that this church is unified. It's gospel-centered, evangelism-focused, and it's very generous. And we see the church declaring the word of God powerfully, making converts, making disciples. Uh, And then he gives us this specific example of a man who was doing it by the name of Barnabas. 
but not all were following that example. And so we need to look at the bad example uh, from beginning in Acts chapter 5, where we talk about Ananias and Sapphira, verses 5, uh, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over all the church and all those who heard of these things. Well, up to now, the pressure that's been on the church has been from the outside, right? Uh, We've seen uh, Peter and John be arrested by the Sanhedrin and have to undergo this trial before the Sanhedrin uh, and, and that failed, right? We saw that Peter and John said, uh, uh, we will obey uh, God and not men. And they went right out and they continued to preach the gospel. Uh, so Satan, of course, is not uh, a one-trick pony. He's got a lot of ways that he can break up a church. And if he could not bust up this church uh, from, the inside, from the outside, he's going to try and do it from the inside. And so he uses Ananias and Sapphira to Sapphira, to see if he can break up this church from the inside. And and that's what we see with this tragic account of these two people. And so to contrast this story, this passage begins uh, with, but a man named Ananias. Uh, To contrast what Barnabas had just done, a man named Ananias did something completely differently. Uh, uh, To a point, right? He sold this piece of property uh, and he brought part of the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, and, and what he did was he kept some of it for himself, uh, but he put the money there, what, he, the, what, would le- what was left of it, he gave to the apostles. And so what we see is a, a willful and premeditated conspiracy between a husband and wife uh, to gain the glory of men uh, at a discount, right? Uh, Barnabas paid full price for, for his glory, and these guys were trying to steal uh, glory and, and, and keep some of the money for themselves. Uh, so unlike the rest of the church, That was of one heart and mind for good. You have Ananias and Sapphira who are of one heart and one soul uh, for wickedness and evil. I want us to remember that these two are believers, right? These are members of the church. And so uh, what I want you to see here is that this story lends credibility to Luke's entire narrative, right? Luke has sometimes been accused of of making everything uh, what what they call triumphalism, like everything is wonderful uh, in the book of Acts and anything that Luke writes. But we see here that that's not true. It's not all peaches and cream. Uh, Luke is not afraid to show uh, some of the warts of this early church. 
Now, Ananias comes, and he comes without Sapphira. We don't know why. It may be that they both wanted individual uh, praise and glory. Uh, but he lays the money down at the apostles' feet, expecting praise, no doubt, uh, no doubt trying to imitate what Barnabas did and receive the same praise that Barnabas got. Uh, but instead, uh, he gets conviction uh, and judgment. Uh, Peter asked why Satan had filled his heart uh, to do such a wicked thing. Uh, and to lie to the Holy Spirit. And boy, uh, there's a lot in that question, isn't there? Uh, again, the, the heart is the seat of human emotion and will uh, and passion. Uh, and Ananias had given Satan full access to it. Uh, and you know that 1 Peter uh, 5.8 says that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. And I bet that Peter had this very episode in mind. Uh, when he was writing that verse, because Satan devoured these two people who were seeking the praise of men uh, more than the praise of God. The Bible commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet Ananias and Sapphira are filled with Satan instead and with predictable results. And, and Peter tells Ananias that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and he says that by lying to the Holy Spirit, uh, you have lied to God. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who say, what is the Holy Spirit? You know, is it the force like in Star Wars or something like that? No. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God himself. And if you ever need a verse to turn to, uh, to prove that to somebody, uh, this would be a pretty good place to go. Well, what was Ananias's sin? Uh, his sin was not that he brought the, sold the property and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. His sin was in the deceit and the deception and the hypocrisy of trying to make people think that he was more spiritual than he was, right? By, by trying to get all the glory and yet holding back some of the money for himself. It was in pretending to give it all when he had not. Uh, and of course, the only way that Peter could have known this was by revelation by the Holy Spirit, right? How else would he have known uh, what was going on? And, and God's justice was swift. Ananias falls down dead uh, at Peter's feet and some people think that Peter was responsible for Ananias' death, but if you read the text carefully, you'll see there is no judgment uh, by Peter. Uh, he simply, Ananias simply falls down dead, and he dies at his feet. And uh, this is a judicial uh, a verdict against Ananias by God. It's divine judgment. And uh, in fact, there are several words in the Greek that could be used to say he died. Uh, but this particular word is only used a couple times, and it means divine judgment. And we're going to come upon this word again uh, when we get to Acts chapter 12, and we read about this gruesome death uh, that Herod dies, being eaten alive by worms. Uh, same word will be used in Acts chapter 12. So Ananias is dead. The Jews do not embalm their dead. And in those hot conditions, it's very important to get the body uh, in the ground quickly or else decay and decomposition and smell and all that that goes along with dead people uh, happens. And so here they buried Ananias so quickly uh, that Sapphira shows up three hours later and hasn't heard anything that has happened. And Ananias is already uh, in the ground. And uh, so Peter gives her a chance to repent of her sin and, and asks, did you sell this property? for such a, and such a price. And, I, and, and uh, Sapphira says, yep, that was the price. So she, she had had at least three hours that we know of to, to think about this conspiracy uh, and to repent of it in her heart. But the fact that she doesn't shows that her heart is hard and she goes along with this same exact lie. Uh, and, and so uh, Peter asks, why have you put the Holy Spirit to the test? 
And we test the Holy Spirit too, don't we? We, we test the Holy Spirit whenever we think we're going to do some sin and we think we're going to get away with it, like the Holy Spirit's not going to notice. Uh, when you used to sneak into the kitchen as a kid and steal a cookie from the cookie jar and think that mom wasn't going to notice, you know, sometimes you won't get busted by mom, but the Holy Spirit still busts you. Uh, he knows. He knows everything. He cannot be fooled. There is nothing that he doesn't see. So if you think you're getting away with something, you're not. You are going to be answerable for your conduct and for your decisions uh, to the Holy Spirit. We're all accountable. So Peter asks this question, uh, why have you conceived this in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I like to think of him asking that question, not in judgment, but in sorrow. Uh, Peter is the leader of this first century church, and, and I think it must have grieved him greatly to know that he's leading a flock and there's somebody in this flock, a couple in fact, who is able to lie to his face like that, but not only to him, but to the Holy Spirit. Uh, how grievous for him to know that he's got people who are calling themselves believers and who are able uh, to do this kind of sin. Well, Peter didn't know what was going to happen to Ananias, but seeing what happened to him, he sure knows what's about to happen to Sapphira. And so he, he convicts her and says, uh, you're about to fall down dead. And in the same instant that Sapphira heard of her husband's death, she finds out about the judgment that's about to fall on her too. And so she too drops down dead at Peter's feet. And the same people who carried Ananias out, they have double duty today. Now they're going to carry out Sapphira and have to bury her too. And as a result of all this, great fear overcomes the church. And, you know, I think they recognize that God knows all and God judges all. And, you know, you have to realize that a lot of these people are very new believers, right? There are 3,000 are added to their number, then 5,000 are added to their number, and then multitudes too numerous to count are being added to their number. Uh, they're, they're new believers. And so I think what God is doing here is, is saying uh, we have to be very careful that our church doesn't become corrupted uh, with this kind of unholiness and immorality. And so we have to judge this sin immediately. And so his judgment reminds us of God's holiness, and we should never forget how holy God is. Uh, every sin is an offense against him. And th this new century church had to realize that they, they could not uh, take God lightly, and they could not go about sinning willfully and not expect that there was going to be some judgment. And and so God wants this first century church not to be corrupted and to walk in the way that he would have them walk. We are called to holiness, and God will accept nothing less. So the contrast between Barnabas on the one hand and Ananias and Sapphira on the other hand is quite striking, and there's much here for us to learn. So what I want to do is just give us uh, two things to avoid and two things to embrace. So the first thing, the first thing to avoid is to avoid people-pleasing. And people-pleasing is when we seek man's approval rather than God's. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing, right? They wanted to look great in the, the apostles' eyes. They wanted to, to be seen as these wonderfully generous people. And, and the sad thing is, is that they would have been seen as these wonderfully generous people if they were just honest and said, you know, I need 25% of this to pay my mortgage, but here's 75%. Uh, this is for you. And they would have gotten praise, but by lying... They were trying to please people. And we do that too, right? We want people to like us. We want people to accept us. We want people to admire us. <clears throat> you know, you young people here are especially subject to this. Uh, peer pressure is intense among your friend groups 
and in school. Uh, you're constantly under pressure uh, to drink or, or to do drugs or to look at pornography or to cheat on your tests or, or to have sex uh, or to do anything else that, that you know is wrong. And it's so hard. I remember it well. I remember the intense pressure, uh, peer pressure, that, that came when, when I was a teenager and dealing uh, with my friends. I just want you to know that that, that kind of pressure is a dead end. Uh, that, that kind of pressure will result in, in nothing positive. Uh, the acceptance of your so-called friends is going to come and it's going to go, depending on how well you have treated that person lately, what you've done for them lately, how good you're making that person feel about themselves. Um, when I first uh, started seminary, uh, the seminary had a strict no alcohol policy. And I was uh, okay with having a couple beers with my friends uh, from time to time. But uh, after I started seminary and my friends that I thought were my so-called friends, I couldn't drink beer with them anymore. Well, I, I tended to lose those friends. And so what happens is that the people that you think are your friends may only be your friends for a certain reason or for a certain fun that you may be having, but they're not your real friends. Uh, they're fly-by-night friends and they are... They're, they're your friends depending on what you can do for them and how you can make them feel. So watch out for that kind of peer pressure. I understand that it's intense, but yet we should be concerned about pleasing God. And when we're pleased about concerning God and, and, uh, and, and what God approves, then we don't have to worry about peer pressure. If we know that God accepts us and God approves us, uh, then God is going to be pleased with us. And when we find our identity in God, when we try to please God, we don't have to worry what anybody else thinks about us. So please him, walk in him, have your walk be acceptable to him, and you won't have to worry about pleasing people. And when, when you know that you're highly esteemed by God, uh, that's all the esteem that you need. So avoid people pleasing. Secondly, avoid hypocrisy. Uh, you know, Ananias and, and Sapphira, they were hypocrites. And the word hypocrite is from the Greek word that means to wear a mask. And it was used in uh, Greek acting uh, they would, a character would come on stage and he'd put on a mask depending on what character he was playing. And then he'd put on another mask if he was playing some other character. And this is where we get our expression of being two-faced from. Uh, we're hypocrites when we wear two faces. And it means pretending to be something that you're not. So uh, just be yourself. Don't try to make yourself out to be more spiritual, more godly than you are. We all have flaws. And so we shouldn't go about lifting ourselves higher than we actually are. And so ask yourself, do I practice this kind of spiritual hypocrisy? Do I make myself out to be a more godly uh, person than I am? Do I act like I have it all together when I'm struggling with some sin or harboring some secret sin? Examine your life and ask God to show you your sin and, and walk in integrity, not pretending to be something that you're not. Uh, you don't want to be caught with your mask on. So avoid hypocrisy, avoid people-pleasing. And now two things to embrace. Uh, first, be reminded of the generosity of God's grace. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. So they wanted a little more credit than they, than they deserved. So what? What's the big deal, right? Well, it's a very big deal. It's a, a, such a big deal uh, that, that this punishment that they actually got was perfectly fair. Uh, the punishment, we may think, greatly exceeded the crime, but not at all. Every single little sin that we commit is an offense and an affront to God, and it deserves death. And, and what's remarkable 
is, is that God doesn't take us out like he took out Ananias and Sapphira, that he is so graceful, so patient, so long-suffering with us and is willing uh, to put up with us. Uh, God is so gracious toward us. We, we, in, we deserve judgment, but instead we get mercy. Uh, and so he loves us so much that he gave us his son, that whoever will believe in him will never perish, but will have eternal life if we will believe in him. That person who believes in him has passed from death to life. So ask God to shine his light on the dark corners of your soul and show you your sin and ask him to help you uh, with that sin. Uh, Recognize the gravity of your sin. Recognize the penalty that it deserves and praise God for the grace that he gives us and then turn around and show that grace to others. So be reminded of the generosity of God's grace and then finally uh, embrace this. Be on guard Genesis 4-7 tells us that sin is crouching at our door and this desire is for you, but you must master it. Don't make peace with your sin. Don't say, God made me this way and uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, Don't accept your sin. Don't trivialize it. Don't rationalize it. Uh, Recognize it and master it. Sin is a big deal to God. He had to send his son uh, to live a perfect life, the life that we could not live and die the penalty of death for our sins That's the price that he paid for it. So don't be content with your sin. If we learn from Barnabas, from Ananias and Sapphira, and we learn these marks of the early church and we heed these warnings, uh, we are not going to be uh, like the church at Laodicea that became lukewarm or the church at Ephesus that forgot its first love. We're going to be a church on fire for the Lord and people are going to gather to us as we go beyond these walls uh, trying to spread the word, the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that it is so for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this contrast in how we ought to walk, Lord, the contrast between Barnabas and between Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Lord, we see what a model Barnabas is and how he upheld the marks of a first century church and how Ananias and Sapphira, uh, by their sin of wanting to please people, uh, ended up displeasing you greatly, Lord. And so, May we learn from these things. May we understand, Lord, that you demand holiness and that it's our duty, Lord, to be holy to the best of our ability and trust you for grace, Lord. We thank you for your son who died for our sins, Lord, and we thank you that we will have eternal life with him because we believe and we look forward to the day when we will see him face to face. We praise you in his matchless name, Lord. Amen.